0: Now for our message tonight, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, Introduced the theme last week uh, out of Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals himself to Moses as I am. And just preached our theme for this series, I am still is. That the God who worked in the lives of the children of Israel is the same God who works for us today to bring great deliverance to us. And so we introduced the theme last week. We're really going to get into the content this week as we cover chapter one, and it's it's really challenging. There's so much, there's so much in the book of Exodus that could be preached. I mean, we could be here for years and years and years, and we'll certainly not exhaust it. And for the most part, as we've gone through Genesis and as we go into Exodus, my desire is really to communicate the heart of the message uh, from God to the original readers as the children of Israel are entering into the promised land. Sometimes that overall message really covers two or three chapters, really. And so um, it's, it's a struggle in this course of study to know, okay, where you know, where should I stop and park for a little bit? And so there may be times that we cover a chapter at a time. There may be times that we cover two or three messages in one chapter, uh, just depending how it, how it breaks down. And really, as we look at Exodus chapter 1, I mean, there could have been three messages preached out of it, but uh, you can really see, uh, you can see an emphasis in the text that really shows us this whole chapter needs to go together for it to make uh, clear and plain sense. And so we'll address some things along the way, but for the most part, our desire is to get across um, the heart of the chapter. But before we get to Exodus uh, chapter 1, I want you to look back to Genesis 15, And then we're going to read from Genesis 46 before we get started. And you can be seated at this time. I'll have you stand when we get to Exodus. But Genesis chapter 15. And we're going back to when the covenant was made uh, with Abraham. When God promised him that it was not going to be Ishmael, but it was going to be a son coming through Sarah. That it was going to be a biological son of this couple that he was going to pass the promise on to. And uh, that night after God makes the covenant with him, Abraham has a nightmare. <laughs> and I want to bring us back to Genesis because we're going to see it's very much connected to Exodus chapter 1. It's important for us to see and understand these things. So Genesis chapter 15, and look at me at verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. Afterward shall they come out with great substance and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age but in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, we're not going to deal with this tonight, but that clues us in that one of the reasons why Israel is in Egypt was because God was extending grace and long suffering to the Amorites. Yet They had not yet come to a place where God's holiness demanded judgment over his grace. And so uh, instead of using Israel to judge them at that particular time, he sends them down to Egypt. That's part of the reason. Now I want you to go to Genesis 46. Genesis 46 is when Jacob finds out that Joseph is in Egypt, that he's not dead, that he is alive. And so he decides at the end of chapter 45 that he's going to go to Egypt and he's going to see Joseph. But you'll remember he stops in Beersheba to offer sacrifices to the Lord to seek God to make sure, am I supposed to go to Egypt? Because Abraham wasn't supposed to go to Egypt and Isaac wasn't supposed to go to Egypt. So I want to make sure I'm supposed to go to Egypt. I want you to look at verse 2 of chapter 46. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night, And said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. There's the promise from God. In Egypt, I will make of thee a great nation. Verse four, I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. And then it goes on to explain how they went down. And it gives the genealogical record and explains that 70 souls went into Egypt with Jacob. But what I want to point out there is God told Abraham, your seed is going to be in a stranger, in a strange land, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. God told him it was going to happen a couple hundred years before it actually did. And then in Genesis 46, we see that while in Egypt, it is God's plan to there make of Israel a great nation. Now let's go to Exodus 1. Exodus 1, and once you found your place there, if you'll stand in honor of reading our text in the word of God tonight, we'll read the entire chapter here, 22 verses of Exodus chapter 1. And the first thing I want to point out is this. Now these are the names. That word now... It means in addition to. And so what this is telling us, is important for us to remember, Exodus is not an isolated book. It's a continuation of the story of Genesis. Actually, what it's going to be is Exodus is an expansion of the covenant to the nation of Israel. That's what Exodus is about. So it's telling us in addition to the covenants contained within the book of Genesis, here is what happens in Egypt now. Okay, so now these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation." And the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. You know, that tells us from the time that Joseph's generation died until this time, God was at work doing what he said to Jacob that he would do, making them fruitful and multiplying them into a great nation. But look at verse eight. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew, and they were grieved because of the children of Israel. And the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, with violence, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigor. And the king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives of which the name of the one was Shiphrah and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them upon the stools, if it be a son then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the men children alive. And the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said unto them, why have ye done this thing and have saved the men children alive? And the women said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, For they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives, and notice this for a third time in this chapter, and the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. And it came to pass, because the midwives feared God, that he made them houses. And Pharaoh charged all his people, saying, Every son that is born he shall cast into the river, and every daughter he shall save alive. Talk about a brutal king. When God said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, they shall afflict them 400 years, he was not kidding when he used the word afflict. But I want to preach to you a message tonight entitled this, The Advancement of Salvation Through the Agonies of Sin. The Advancement of Salvation Through the Agonies of Sin. Of sin. May God bless reading his word, you can be seated. The advancement of freedom always comes with the agony of suffering. The advancement of freedom always comes with or through the agony of suffering. On July 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed and the american war for independence broke out and took off and the american colonies the soldiers there they they began to fight along the frontiers trying to seek freedom from the tyrannical monarch of england and after years of valiant patriotism battles and victories in april of uh, 1782 The newly established government in Britain signed the Treaty of Paris, which accepted America's independence and our country gained its freedom. We gained our freedom. But the advancement of that freedom came at a significant cost. When you look up the numbers in total from every every military branch, every country, you're looking at over 156,000 people that lost their lives, whether it was in action or if it was by disease or if they were deserted by their army and just presumed dead, the number was over 156,000. Since that time, in maintaining our freedom since the Revolutionary War, over 646,000 troops have given their lives in defense of our freedom Another 539 have died from non uh, 539,000 have died from non-combat related causes and of course millions more along the way were severely wounded and their lives were forever changed having been in battle. And it was all for the advancement of freedom. And so the advancement of freedom comes through the agony of suffering. Israel's freedom from Egypt advanced through their suffering at the hands of their task masters. After the death of Joseph's generation, this new king rises to power in Egypt, and this new king saw the growth of Israel as a huge problem, and his solution for this problem was to inflict pain, suffering, and death upon the children of Israel. But what we saw emphasized for us in verse 7 and verse 12 and verse 20 was that in spite of their attempts to destroy God's people, in spite of their attempts to inflict pain and suffering and death upon the children of Israel, they continued to grow They continued to advance as a nation and to multiply and to uh, fill the land. And so what we see is that God's plan to make them a great nation was advanced through their suffering. It was their suffering that promoted growth among the people. And as God has made it clear that Egypt was part of his covenant plan One of the questions that continually comes up is really this, why was Egypt necessary? Why was it necessary? We asked that many times going through uh, the book of Genesis and the different sufferings that Joseph went through. Why was all this necessary? Why did God give Abraham that dream that the, of, of horror that they were going to be afflicted for 400 years? And as we read through this passage and we see the brutality uh, toward the children of Israel, as well as the taking of innocent uh, lives of children, we just have to ask ourselves, why why was this suffering necessary? Why did God, I mean, these are His chosen people, the people whom He loves, and Egypt is a wicked, pagan, godless nation. Why would God allow His people to suffer at the hands of these Egyptians? Many people today ask similar questions of God. Why all the pain? Why all the suffering? Why? all the death? Why do those things have to be the consequences of sin? Uh, Why did God uh, allow things like shootings and murders and homicides to happen? Why does God allow rape, incest, and abuse? Why is there war and terrorism? It seems to us in our human finite minds that it'd be much better if God would just do away with evil. Do away with pain. Do away with suffering. Does he get some kind of sick and twisted pleasure in seeing his created beings suffer? Is that what it is? I mean, why? It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just that God would allow this evil, that God would allow this pain, this suffering, and this death. And yet, as we look through the scriptures and as we look all around us, it almost seems to be that pain, suffering, and death is a necessary evil, even to God and people really wonder that and sometimes you might wonder that why does it have to be this way why the suffering and so as we look at this text tonight the important question for us to ask is this because what we clearly see is God advancing his covenant plan for Israel through their suffering we see it three times they multiplied and grew They were afflicted, but they multiplied and grew. They they killed their children, but they multiplied and grew. And so that tells us that that God was advancing his plan for the nation of Israel, specifically through their suffering. And what we want to look at tonight is why is it that God had to advance his plan through suffering? Why was it necessary for Israel to suffer? And, And how does the pain the suffering and the death, how does that possibly advance God's plans in the world today? The first thing that we need to understand is this, Egypt was always a part of God's covenant plan. It was always a part. This opening word here in Exodus points us back to Genesis, and it tells us that we've got to interpret things in Exodus based on things that we have studied and understood in the book uh, of Genesis. We read there in Genesis 15 how God had made this covenant with with Abraham and he told him that he was going to make of him a great and mighty nation and that he was going to give him the land of Canaan and he promised him that uh, he was going to bless those who bless him and curse those who curse him and that through his seed all the nations of the earth were going to be blessed. That was the covenant that God had made with Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel. And yet what we read in Genesis 15 was that God said that his seed would serve a strange nation in a strange land, and they would be afflicted for these 400 years, and then God would lead them out. That was his promise, that God would judge this nation and lead them out. And so it tells us that Egypt was part of God's plan, going all the way back to Abraham. And then what we have in Genesis 46 are the last words that God speaks in the book of Genesis. That's the last time we see God speak. And what did God say? Jacob, go down to Egypt and don't fear Because there I'm going to be with you, and there I'm going to multiply your nation. And so we can see from the book of Genesis that what happens in Exodus 1 is not taking place because God is absent. It's not taking place because God doesn't care or God doesn't take knowledge of it. God knew full well hundreds of years before the bondage came that it was going to happen. We have this record here in Exodus 1 of the 12 sons of Israel, but also it's mentioned that there were 70 souls that came out of Canaan into Egypt, and that would follow up right in line with Genesis 46. And so you can see the very first section of this book points us back to Genesis 46, so that the Israelites reading Exodus for the first time would also understand what happened in our past was not a mistake. What happened in our past back in Egypt was directly connected to a promise that God made to our father, Jacob. They would make that connection. It tells us in verse number six that Joseph died and all his brethren and all that generation. And verse seven tells us that the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and waxed exceeding mighty and the land was filled with them. You know what that means? There was a whole lot of Israelites running around Egypt. What's interesting is you read that, you know, Genesis starts with the creation. It says, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And now God is showing through that the children of Israel are his creation. And he is multiplying them and causing them to replenish the land of Egypt here. And what this tells us is that God was in the works of advancing his plan his covenant to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God was at work in Egypt, bringing his plan to pass. But it's important for us to also remember that this covenant is bigger than just the nation of Israel. And this covenant is bigger than just the land and them becoming a nation and them having kings and and, and them becoming a great and mighty people. No, this covenant that God made with them through it was through Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed and what that covenant was is it was really a an expansion of the Adamic covenant going back to the time of the fall when God promised to Eve that through her seed, that her seed would crush the serpent's head, that her seed would destroy man's greatest enemy. That great tempter talking about Satan. I mean, our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death. Those are our greatest enemies. And the promise was that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, would destroy and defeat our greatest enemy. And in the book of Genesis, we saw that seed traced through Seth after Abel was killed by his brother Cain. We saw it transferred to Seth. And then we saw it come down through Noah's son Shem. And thus you have uh, the Shemites where we get the term Semitic or anti-Semitic from. Those would be descendants from the sons of Shem. And then it was transferred to Abraham, a descendant of Shem. And from Abraham to Isaac and Isaac to Jacob and Jacob to his 12 sons making up the children of Israel that are here in Egypt. This covenant it, that God is at work fulfilling in Exodus is not just a promise for the Israelites. It is a promise to us that through the nation of Israel, God would send the Savior, Jesus Christ, who would defeat our enemies, our foes of sin, death, and hell, and would grant eternal life to all who would trust in him by faith. That is the covenant that is work at work here. Jesus Christ. Christ is the seed of the woman. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so this covenant is God's plan to bring redemption not just to Israel, but to all the nations of the world, to all of humanity. And God is at work fulfilling it while Israel is in Egypt. And the way that God advances his plan Was through Israel's suffering at the hands of the Egyptians. Verse 8 tells us now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. This wasn't just a new king, a new Pharaoh, this was an entirely new dynasty that the the Egyptian regimes they were not necessarily from father to son to father to son it was it was dynasties that a family would rule and then another dynasty would come in and take over and so what this means when this new king rises to power he has no connections no ties to Joseph and thus no ties to the nation of Israel and as he is establishing in his insecurity his young regime his young dynasty here He sees this nomadic people, these Semites, he sees these Hebrews who are beginning to multiply and overrun the land. And what that does is it takes his mind back in their history to another Semitic group called the Hyksos. And the Hyksos had come in and they had overrun the land of Egypt and they began to establish their own kingdoms within the cities of Egypt. And there was a complete takeover and Pharaoh's power was all completely gone and a dynasty fell because of it. But when the Pharaoh in Joseph's time came to power, he had expelled the Hyksos from the land. And what happens is as Joseph, as he with this famine, the way he handles it and the way he he purchases all the land and redistributes everybody throughout the land, what it did is it took all that power that was in the cities and it brought it all back to Pharaoh. So now we have absolute power in the hands of one man. And now this new king comes in and destroys that dynasty and is establishing his own dynasty. And what he sees in the children of Israel is another Hyksos coming to power. He sees them not only becoming a multitude, but he sees their might. He sees their strength, and his power is threatened by it, and he's fearing them, overtaking them. And so, verse 9 says, And he said unto his people, Behold, the children of Israel, uh, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply and it come to pass that when there falleth out any war they join also under our enemies and fight against us and so get them up out of the land and so he's fearful and he he decides we need to we need to squelch these people we need to get rid of them we need to afflict them we need to oppress them but what I want to point out to you is while this king while Pharaoh, seems to be opposing the children of Israel. I want to point out to you that he is really standing in opposition to God and his plan. If you look there, here are his problems. Verse 10, let us deal wisely with them lest they multiply. What was God's plan? To multiply them. He says, Lest it come to pass when there falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. What was God's plan? To bring them out of Egypt and to give them the land of Canaan. And so what you find is this Pharaoh is actually standing in opposition against God. And so because he's standing in opposition against God, he decides to afflict these people. He becomes oppressive toward them. Verse 11 says, therefore they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. These taskmasters would have been military officers. and They would have carried whips or carried clubs that they would have flogged these people with as they were were doing their tasks. And they would sit there and they would lord over them and they would abuse them physically and make life hard and miserable on them they force them it says to build these treasure cities python and ramses there in the delta region of goshen and so they have to do that but notice with me in verse 12 it says but the more they afflicted them the more they multiplied and grew The more that they suffered, the more that God's plan advanced. And so his plan was advancing through their suffering. And the result at the end of verse 12 says this, and they were grieved because the children of Israel, that word grieved, it's a word that means they were disgusted with them. It also means that they were horrified by them. They were terrified by what these Israelites would become and what they would do to their land. And so it says in verse 13 that the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, a word that means violence. And it says in verse 14, and they made their lives better bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manner of service in the field. They put them to forced manual labor. Now I don't know about you. I I did a little bit of work with stucco. I didn't do any work with brick, but I'll tell you this hauling concrete and being a, a mud carrier and all that's hard work. My shoulders got jacked that one year that I was doing that. And so we're talking about hard work. We're talking about in the deserts of Egypt, it's hot And they're having to work with their hands. And they're having to carry and haul these bricks everywhere. And they're having to build these these, uh, cities here and these storehouses. And all the while, they've got these taskmasters that are beating them and whipping them and afflicting them. And when you think about what they were going through, it said every single thing wherein they made them to serve at the end of verse 14 was with rigor, was with violence. Everything they did, they were treated with brutality. Think concentration camps. Think thirst. Think starvation. Think holocaust. How they treated, how they gassed the the Jews there in Germany. I mean, that's the kind of treatment that we're talking about. They tried to afflict them. They tried to make them so miserable to where it even killed them or it kept them from having children. That was their plan. Each time they continued to multiply, they afflicted them more. And so what happened is, because that wasn't working, verse 15 says, And the king of Egypt spake unto the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was shiphrah and the name of the other Puah. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then she shall live. What's going on here is whenever they were giving birth, they would have these, these stools, these little basins of water, so this, they would do water births. And once the woman had the child, then the baby would be washed off in that water. But the implication here is what the Pharaoh is commanding, is that when they deliver those children, they're to drown them in that stool if it's a son. We're talking about full-term abortion, that when they take the kid out, they take the kid's life. This is brutal. This is evil. It's infanticide. And Pharaoh is a picture perfect example of the enemy of God's people who stands in opposition to God's plan. That's why his name's never given. He wants Israel to understand it's not about the particular individual. This Pharaoh is a figurehead of people who stand against God's plan. And one of the signs of standing in opposition to God is the devaluing of human life and the willingness to kill innocent babies. That's a sign of opposing God. Some of the greatest sins... In American history, would be considered the unjust taking of Native American lives. Of course, slavery is one of our greatest sins, but I would submit to you that the greatest sin that we have is the inexcusable murder of millions of unborn babies. It shows no respect for human life. The most inhumane procedures that you can imagine. And now what America is fighting for is not even within the first 20 weeks. It's to be able to deliver a child full term, set them on the table, and let them die. That is evil. That is wicked. That is infanticide. And yet there's a whole segment of our society that is fighting for it under the guise of women's rights but it's not about women's rights or else you would care about even the little girl that is being aborted. It's about violence. It's about evil. And it's the sign of those who are standing in opposition against God. And unfortunately, even Christians have used the Bible at times in our history to justify violence and slavery. But what this text shows us is the devaluing of human beings and slavery and oppression and infanticide are evidences of a ruthless people who are opposed to God. It is no mistake. It is no for lack of a better word, it's no mistake that as America has turned its back on God and has begun to teach children from the time they're my little one's age that they came from monkeys and apes and animals and they're here by chance that America has devalued human life and that America has openly accepted infanticide. It's because it's the sign of a people who have deserted God. People who don't want to live with God in mind. Pharaoh was diametrically opposed to God and his plan. And yet what we find is this. God's plan continued to advance through the suffering. These Hebrew women's, verse 17, Hebrew midwives, feared God. You know what the difference is between someone who fears God and someone who doesn't fear God? God the value of human life. These midwives feared God, and it says that their fear of God moved them to action, to take their own lives into their own hands, to defy the king's commandment, and to say, no, This is godless. This is wicked. We can't take the lives of these children. And so they refuse to take their lives. And when Pharaoh calls them, he he says, hey, why have you saved the men children? You're working in opposition against me here. They said in verse uh, number 19, and the midwives said unto Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are lively and are delivered ere the midwives come in unto them. They said, hey, all I know is this. They don't have these long drawn out labors like the Egyptian women do. They deliver their kids quickly. In fact, they deliver their kids so quickly that they they already have the child in hand by the time the midwives even come. And there are some who attack these ladies. Oh, they're lying. Well, there's nothing that suggests to us that they were lying. That may have been true. I mean, we are talking about how God has been multiplying the nation and making them fruitful. And they're having children left and right that there were so many having kids, the midwives couldn't even keep up with them. By the time they got to the next one, that one was born. And then they got to the next one and that child was born. And they said, we can't can't keep up with all this. But look at how God deals with them in verse 20. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. God honors those who honor human life. Amen. But notice in verse 20 it says this. And the people multiplied and waxed very mighty. No doubt there were some young children who were killed in this infanticide. There was suffering. There was fear, dread, violence, evil, heartache. They're going through all the emotions that you can imagine if somebody comes in here. You have all the expectation of having this child and they take that child from you and kill it immediately. I mean, I can't imagine the grief of that. They're going through all the suffering. And yet in spite of Pharaoh's attempt to destroy God's people, God's plan continued to advance. They continued to multiply. It says in verse uh, 21 that it came to pass because the midwives feared God that he made them houses. That means that he gave them children and he multiplied their kids as the stars of the sky and the sand on the shore. His plan continued to go forward. And yet in verse 22, It only facilitated greater suffering. And Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born, ye shall cast into the river and every daughter ye shall save alive. Now he takes it out of the hands of the women, the midwives, and he commands everybody in the whole city, in the whole country. You hear of the birth of a Hebrew son you take that boy and you throw him in the Nile. This is pure evil. And what we would ask is, why is this necessary? Our hearts are broken by such lack of mercy. By someone who can be so hard hearted that they would stand out on the street with a sign in their hands declaring their desire for full-term abortion. But as we look at this situation in Exodus 1, we would ask this, why didn't God just deal with Pharaoh? Why didn't God throw Pharaoh into the Nile? In fact, what we go on to find is this Pharaoh dies without ever facing judgment for what he did at least that we're aware of. So why was it necessary for the pain, the affliction, the violence, the rigor, the brutality, the bondage, the death? Why was all that necessary? As I mentioned, chapters one and two could really be preached as one message. But we're going to break up chapter 2 into several, and so I'm going to go ahead and jump ahead and show you why this is. If you look at chapter 2 and verse 23, it says this, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. You see what I mean? We have no record this guy ever faced judgment for the brutality that he exacted upon these people. But it says, and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. What is this telling us? The bondage, the suffering, the pain, the death is ultimately what led Israel to cry for deliverance. The suffering that they were going through, it's when God heard their cries and he saw the affliction of his people and he saw the consequences of man's evil and his sin, it's what led God to send a deliverer in Moses and by God's mighty hand to redeem these people out of their bondage, out of their condition, out of this evil. Without the bondage, Israel would have continued to assimilate with the Egyptians and they would have lost their identity without the bondage they would have been perfectly content to just enjoy life in Egypt never realizing God had bigger plans for them that God wanted a relationship with them that God wanted to bring them out to worship him and to give them this land and to bless him with all of the blessings of their father without the suffering they never would have realized they had a problem and thus The suffering of Egypt advanced God's covenant plan by awakening Israel to their need of a savior. To where they come to chapter two and verse 23. And they're sighing and they're crying and they're burdened down by the massacre, by the infanticide by the evil hearts of men and God sees their affliction and God hears their cry and God sends a deliverer to redeem them out of it. So the question is this, how does the suffering that we face today somehow serve to advance God's plan to advance God's salvation. I mean, why couldn't he just save us without all the consequences, without the pain, without the suffering, without the death? Why why couldn't he do it that way? Well, from the fall of Adam and Eve, when they first disobeyed God's command, the consequences of sin entered into the world, and those consequences were pain and suffering and death. And on top of those things, we were estranged from God. They were expelled from the garden, a demonstration that, hey, you no longer have this fellowship to be able to walk with God like you could without sin. Your sin stands in the way now. And so the pain, the suffering, the agony that we face is a result of sin today the cancer the shootings the murder the homicide the abortion the slavery all the atrocities that we experience in our day and time tells us deep inside that something is wrong let's think about it for a moment what if there were no consequences to sin what if there was no death no pain no suffering, that from the time that Adam and Eve sinned, that they were just able to go on uh, in their comfortable lives and society was able to go on and life was easy and life was perfect and there was no problem at all. What would it be like then? Well, we would have no realization that there was a problem. We'd have nothing to tell us this isn't the way it's supposed to be. We would have nothing to tell us that we're estranged from God. And thus we would go through our lives all the way to our grave and end up spending all of eternity in the pain and torments of hell, all because we didn't know that there was a problem. See the problem tells us we need a solution. Last summer, My family and I were about to go on vacation, and that first night, I started feeling a faint but very nagging pain in my back, (laughs) and I was trying to figure out, man, this is so bizarre, and it would come, and it would go, but it, it started coming on more and more, and it was so uncomfortable, and I couldn't sleep, and I couldn't move around very well, and I just couldn't get comfortable at all. And then a few days into it, the pain started radiating around to my abdomen. And I mean, I was just, I was constantly uncomfortable and I was like, I've got to figure out what's going on here. And so I went to the ER and they did some blood tests on me and they did some ultrasound on me and, and and trying to figure out what's going on here. And that nurse came back in and she said, you've got gallstones, three big ones. I'm like, what's that? She said, there's stones in your gallbladder, and basically your whole gallbladder is full right now. And that's why your back was hurting, was to tell you that you're hurting on the inside. And so I had to go to a surgeon, and the surgeon had to cut me four times and take this thing out and work on it. And I mean, there was pain, and there was writhing and agony and suffering that was going on with that. But listen if I never felt the pain in my back and I never felt the pain in my side, I would have never known that something was wrong inside. But because I had the pain in my back and because I had the pain in my side, that pain, that uncomfortableness, that agony, it it sent me and drove me to the surgeon who could remove the problem. And the reality is, That if we did not have pain and if we did not have suffering, we wouldn't know that we had a problem. And so the suffering and the violence and the evil that we see in our day and time, this infanticide or the slavery or the human trafficking or or the prostitution, I mean, all these different uh, things that we see in our society, the shootings, the massacres that just grieve us to our heart, that break our hearts and makes us say, why God, why is all this here? What this text is telling us, is the pain and the suffering and the death. Its intention is to drive us to the fact that we need a Savior and to drive us to the Savior who is Jesus Christ the one who, through whom God is going to uh, bring through this covenant to Abraham, that God was going to send the seed. He was going to send the Savior. He was going to send the seed of Abraham, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He was going to send the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And this Savior is able to come and to remove the problem from our lives. But without the pain, the suffering, and the death, we wouldn't realize anything is wrong, and we would go go straight to hell when we die. But I want you to know this. God sees what's going on. God hears the cries. God sees our grief. He sees the pain He sees the suffering, the anguish and the agony that we experience as the consequences of sin and yet in mercy and love and grace he takes note of it and he has pity upon us and so he himself left the throne of heaven and he took upon him human flesh and he went and he bore our sorrows and he took our wounds and he endured our suffering so that in dying in our place on the cross, we could escape eternal suffering, eternal death, and that one day when Jesus Christ comes back, he's going to abolish sin, and he's going to abolish suffering and pain and death, and he's going to give us glorified bodies that are not subject to cancer, that are not subject to cuts and wounds and scrapes, but perfect bodies that are without sin, without temptation, and he's going to burn this uh, defiled earth and heaven. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be able to live just like we are on this earth, but without sin, without suffering, without pain, and without death. And the reason why is because God is merciful. And the suffering that we endure today, it advances God's salvation by awakening us to our need Of a savior. Without it, we'd have no idea. We'd think we were just fine. But let me just tell you that the toughest taskmaster that you will ever have is sin. Alcohol will bind you, beat you, and whip you beyond mental capacity marijuana, psychedelics, and narcotics will bind you to the point where you can't live without it. You have to smoke it. You have to hit it. You have to get the next high. It's like you can't live without it. Listen, my friend, that's bondage. It's bondage in your life. A moment of pornography will bind you for a lifetime and destroy and oppress your mind for years to come. Anger is a gripping force that holds you in its chains, that oppresses people, that destroys everything in its path and hurts kids and hurts spouses and even hurts yourself. And it can lead to abuse where you hurt those around you. Sexual promiscuity brings on STDs and emotional and relational turmoil. Hey, listen, sin may have its moments of pleasure. That high may feel real good at the time. And that and that moment of pleasure may feel real good at the time, but sin is binding and it will chain you up and wrap you by the throat so that you can't live free. And that's not God's plan for your life. God's plan is for you to be free. And the suffering that we experience because of our own sin, its intent is to drive us to the fact that we are estranged from God and that we need Jesus Christ. God's plan is not for us to be enslaved to sin. It's for us to be free to serve him. Jesus broke the chains of sin. And if you're a Christian who is bound by sin, instead of continuing in that bondage, let the suffering, let the pain, let the consequences, the doubt that it brings into your life, let it drive you back to the Savior who can once again free you from that binding influence in your life. See, here's what we realize, folks. Rather than being angry at God for the consequences of man's sin, for the pain, The evil, the suffering that we endure, we really ought to thank God. Why? Because that pain, that suffering, that death, those consequences of sin advance His salvation in our lives by awakening us to our need of a Savior. That's His mercy, folks. He could have just said, go on, I'm done with you. You can live your life, and once you die, it's over, and you're annihilated, and you'll spend eternity in hell. He could have done that, and he would have been just to do that. But because he is loving, gracious, and merciful toward his created people, he had a plan. And he advanced his plan through the sufferings of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph And Israel, and through the sufferings of Jesus, he continued to advance his plan of salvation. And so if you're in bondage, only Jesus can set you free. If you'll allow the consequences of sin drive you to Jesus and you'll trust in him and call upon him to be your savior, you will be saved and he can free you from whatever binds you. And if you're a believer in here tonight and you're bound to some sin, and maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, and maybe some other kind of binding sin that nobody else knows about, can I remind you, I am, still is. The God who delivered Israel out of this brutal case of bondage is the same God who can deliver you today. Jesus freed you already if you're a believer. And the only reason that you ended up back in sin is not because he wasn't sufficient, it's because you did what you wanted to do. And sometimes there are consequences. There are legal problems. There are health problems that come about because of sin. But what you ought to do is let those struggles bring you back to Jesus. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Holy Spirit of God that you've been resisting for so long with this addiction, with this binding sin or influence in your life, the Holy Spirit of God will begin to speak to you again and he'll convict you again and he'll be able to help you Get the freedom that God intends for you to have. So let's thank God for the consequences of sin because they show us our need of a savior and they drive us to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are a good God. You could have just condemned us immediately And yet, in grace and mercy and kindness, you hear our cries, you see our affliction, and in pity, you sent us a Savior. And I pray, dear Lord, that you would help us that if there are some that are not saved, to let the evil that we see around us awaken us to our need of Christ and that they might call upon him tonight. I pray that if there are believers that are bound, that you would help them find freedom in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.